afternoon, everybody, and thanks for listening to our second podcast of Eat the 80s, All 80s, All the Time. I'm Lake Green, joined by Eduardo Garibaldi, and we are happy to bring you a discussion-based version of our show. Ed, how are you feeling today? I'm doing great, Lake, and I'm so glad to be back here to talk about the greatest decade of all times. Absolutely. I'm with you, Ed. Today, we have a special guest on air with us. For those of you who listen to Rock Show, this name and voice will be quite familiar to you. I am pleased to welcome for a special appearance my fellow host of Rock Show, SFC Spot for Rock, Mr. Eric Abusoff. Eric, how are you today? It's Rick behind the board once again. I'm doing pretty darn well, like... Uh, the 80s, you know, I've had some, I've had some muffled history with the 80s, but you know, I dig, I dig this program, I dig the idea. Absolutely, thank yeah. you so much, Eric, for for taking the time to come. Yeah, thank My you. My valued so much. friend, couldn't do it without him. Glad to have you here. All right, so let's just jump right into it. But before we do, we're going to discuss briefly the formatting of this episode, since we won't be playing any music, as you know, if you've listened to the first podcast. This is Podcast 2. Today, we'll be talking all about a few of the greatest albums of the 80s. Last episode, we kind of focused on albums, but also artists. Today, we're just talking about albums. And the criteria for the selection of these albums is largely still personal opinion and based on opinion. Uh, but factors like certification level and chart placing will also be considered. Uh, to begin, I'll be highlighting an album from the genre of metal. As I said in the last episode, it's no secret that metal dominated the 80s for most of the first half. Uh, but by the close, the genre had morphed, enjoying commercial popularity for a short period with the subgenre of hair metal. Uh, but by the decade's close, it kind of faded out of mainstream popularity, probably due to uh, hair metal for an extent, just it got kind of too glammy. Nonetheless, it had morphed into numerous branches, though, and subgenres by the decade's end, including an important and potent one known today as thrash metal. Characterizes a harder, heavier version of the genre springing from the roots of classic metal bands. Uh, bands like Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, and of course the mighty Metallica were born with the rise of the genre in the decade. Ed, any opinions off the cuff about metal, thrash? Uh, no, personally I didn't know that, uh, you know, uh, metal in general had experienced uh, such a, you know, uh, great uh, uh, transformation and, uh, but, you know, we are here to, I mean, personally, I'm here to learn from you. That's all right. And as you guys know, if you listen to Rock Show, you do know that metal is my side of uh, the uh, set list, has been for a long time. But that's okay. That's, that's why we love the different personalities. Yeah. This leads us into our first album to be discussed this episode, the metal album I chose for this decade as being probably the most notable in my opinion, but that's once again really subject to debate and personal opinion, is indeed one from the mighty Metallica, Arguably, in my opinion, the greatest thrash metal band of all time. A lot of people would probably agree with that. This album is Master of Puppets, released Master. in 1986. Many of you metalheads may automatically think of the band's raw debut album, titled Kill Em All, especially if you're a Metallica fan, released in 83. Or even their follow-up, the infamous Ride the Lightning, which is also amazing, released in 84. Once again, both of these first two albums are phenomenal works. 
uh, as is Injustice for All, which followed up uh, Master of Puppets, but I decided to choose neither of these albums for our discussion and instead decided to highlight the band's third album titled Master of Puppets. Released under Electro Records, labeled on March 3rd, 1986, the album peaked at number 7 on the U.S. Top Rock Albums Billboard chart and remained on that chart until 2017, a whopping 31 years. On the U.S. Billboard 200, it peaked at number 29 and the U.K. peaked at number 41. In terms of certifications in the U.S., the album has been certified six times platinum, with over six million copies sold. Uh, Metallica's potent lineup in this album features, of course, James Hetfield on vocals uh, and rhythm guitar, Kirk Hammett on lead, Cliff Burton on the bass, and Lars Ulrich on the drums. All members helped with the post-production of the album. Uh, the album cover itself features a maroon red background with rows of white crosses, reminiscent of those in Normandy, France at the D-Day Memorial. Uh, well, listen, while the cover is probably not the strongest of the band, you know, especially if you compare it to Ride the Lightning, you know, in my opinion, I really believe this is their most complete album of the decade, most well-rounded album they released. Uh, not to say the other ones aren't well-rounded, because Ride the Lightning is, you know, damn near a masterpiece, and Injustice for All is phenomenal as well. Uh, but I just think this one takes home the trophy. Uh, songs like Welcome Home, Sanitarium, Battery, and the title track Master of Puppets are powerful, heavy driving pieces. The instrumental Orion is a characteristic of the band and truly sets them apart from other thrash bands. And this is why, in my opinion, I think Metallica is the undisputed heavyweight champion of thrash metal because of their mix of hard, you know, heavy metal sound uh, with melodic composition and, you know, probably the best, most high-quality production uh, of any of the thrash bands. I think these really are unrivaled. This is why the, the, I really think they are the best, the creme de la creme of thrash. On a personal note, the album was the first album I ever purchased by the band, and the first I ever listened to. If you guys are album collectors out there, or if you're a little older, uh, I'm sure you remember going to the store to buy CDs. I went at about 13 years old, and I went and I bought the album on CD at Kmart. I don't even think Kmart's around anymore, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I went to a Kmart in southern New Jersey around the year 2013, and little did I know that the album was still 27 years after its release on the U.S. Top Rock Albums Billboard chart. Huzzah for Metallica, the kings of thrash. Rock on. Ed, anything quick to add at the end? Um, no, I just loved your French with la creme de la creme. Very, <laughs> very wonderful accent, really. Yeah, Notable accent. Oh, I could speak yeah. fluent French, clearly, yeah. clearly. <laughs> yeah, maybe in the next episode. <laughs> Eric, I know you're not the biggest metal fan, but I know you have a soft spot for Metallica. What's your take, man? Yeah, you're right. I mean, me personally, I've never been too much of a big metalhead uh, to be honest, and uh, I make it no secret my disdain, my utter contempt for hair metal, because that to me represents everything wrong with, with music at that time. It was over-commercialized, it, it was excessive, and to me it's no, one, it's no mystery as to why that genre was so easily slain in 1991 with Nevermind. But uh, Metallica, yes, I, I do have a soft spot for Metallica. Uh, I like you saw it uh, just a few days ago. I, I just showed you. I, I bought Ride the Lightning on LP, and uh, Metallica. Uh, you know they were very, they were a very respectable band. They really dominated the thrash genre because mainly because they were able to um, commit to such an artistry and uh, perfect such a craft. And uh, not to not to throw shade on other bands, but I mean Metallica 
it's I think it's fair to say that they perfected thrash. Absolutely, you're a hundred thousand percent right. They the are the songwriting. The songwriting was there too. They are the kings of thrash metal because they perfected the craft in both production and sound, yes. and melodic quality, and even you know artwork for the albums. But that's up for debate. You know, Anthrax had some pretty killer uh, artwork on their albums, and of course Slayer with the whole demonic, you know, satanic whole uh, culture there. Uh, but Metallica, I think, is unrivaled. I always like to say this though: Metallica had, I think, a five or six album run. That I think is unparalleled from from Ride the Lightning, you know, Kill 'Em All, their embryonic, you know, intro, their debut, great. But but from but from Ride the Lightning all the way through to the Black Album in the early '90s, those those albums are unrivaled in, in terms of thrash. Uh, but after that, they just they felt they they fell off the face of the earth, and their later stuff is is horrific. So I say Metallica is still the greatest of all thrash bands. But if you're looking for the most consistent thrash band. To listen to, I really give that to Megadeth because I think you can never go wrong just in terms of the the volume of, of albums they've produced. They produce so many albums, Megadeth, and every one you can't go wrong. I, I don't think I've ever bought a single Megadeth album that I've said, you know what, this is bad. This is I don't want to listen to this. So I I, I really give Megadeth credit for the most consistent uh, thrash band. And not to mention that you know Megadeth's frontman Dave Mustaine was the original lead guitar player from Metallica. Absolutely, Megadeth was formed after he left the band. So once again, gotta 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 give Megadeth credit too. But Metallica is still, I think, the, the kings of thrash. All right, so we're gonna move on here for my second album. We're going in a completely different cor- uh, direction, going progressive. Uh, so for the second album, I'll showcase. I'm gonna delve into the genre of progressive rock. Indeed, in my opinion, the peak of this genre did not occur in the '80s, but it occurred in the early '70s. But, and through the mid-70s, but one band, arguably one of the best prog groups of all time, reached their height of mastery in 81. Again, if you listen to Rock Show, you'll know this is one of my all-time favorites, period. If you've been listening since freshman year, 2018, you'll, you'll undoubtedly know, but even if you've listened in the last you know, two years, you'd know. This group is one of my all-time favorite at bands, and that is Rush. The Canadian progressive rock band has achieved widespread acclaim by the end of the 1970s and their album uh, titled Permanent Waves released in 80 had a few commercial hits with Free Will and Spirit of the Radio on it but it would be their follow-up album titled Moving Pictures that is widely regarded as the band's best work. Released on February 12, 1981, the album peaked at number 3 on the U.S. Billboard 200, number 3 on the U.K., and number 1 in Canada, no surprise, all occurring in the year of 81. In terms of sales in the U.S., the album was certified five times platinum, with over 5 million copies sold, and four times platinum in Canada with 400,000 copies sold. It reached silver status in the U.K. with over 60,000 copies sold. It was the band's highest-selling album in the U.S., the album cover is 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 freaking notorious, uh, featuring a black colored background with photographic imaging on the front and the sides. The front depicts movers who are carrying pictures. On the side, people are shown crying because the pictures are passing passing by or emotionally moving. Finally, the back cover has a film crew making a motion picture of the whole scene. It was photographed outside the Ontario Legislative Building at Queen's Park in Toronto, and the pictures that are being moved in the band Starman are the band Starman logo featured on the reverse cover of 2112 in 1976, one of the dogs playing poker paintings entitled The Friend in Need, and a painting that shows Joan of Arc being burned at the stake. 
the uh, maybe an allusion to uh, Witch Hunt, one of the songs in the album. Yeah. The film crew on the back cover actually shot the scene from which a single frame was used for the cover. This was revealed to Rush concert goers several years later when the image was still sh- shown on the stage uh, and then was you know projected as a video, which suddenly uh, came to life as a film sequence. Very cool. Cover work was designed by Yu Syme. And the estimated cost of production was 9500 U.S. dollars. Anthem Records, the band's label, refused to cover the whole cost, and the rest was left to the band to pick up. Another fun fact regarding the album's release is that it was played in its entirety during Getty Lee's visit to Rick Ringer's radio show on Chum FM in Toronto on February 11th, 1981. And that was the day before the album was released to the public. So Getty Lee went on Toronto Radio in 81, February 11th. The album was played in its entirety on the guy's broadcast. And then the next day it was released to the public. Featuring the infamous trio lineup of the band is truly a masterful work. If you know Rush, anybody who knows Rush or or Prog Rock, I don't know how you don't know the names of every member of this group. But, you know, uh, I'll say them again. Featuring Getty Lee on bass guitar, bass pedals, keyboards, and vocals. Alex Lifeson on lead guitar. And the late, great Neil Peart on drums. The group is truly at their best. Yu uh, Syme, the designer of the cover, also plays synthesizer on the song Witch Hunt. Mirroring earlier styles of the band, many songs allude to a post-apocalyptic world warning people against mass hysteria and tyrannical gubernatorial authority, amongst other things. Huh, pretty relevant today. A few notable tracks worth mentioning, although in my opinion, they are all worth mentioning, include YYZ, YYZ, an instrumental that is so good it was nominated for a Grammy Award, The Camera Eye, Vital Signs, and Red Barchetta. Commercially speaking, the band once again received radio acclaim with the piece Limelight. Rush is truly one of my favorite bands of all time, in my opinion, amongst the top five greatest prog rock bands ever. Again, I will share a personal note which I believe is necessary just because music is so sentimental. You know, it's so intimate. You know, if you don't have a personal connection to music, then you're doing it wrong. I'm sorry. I heard this album for the first time when I was about five years old, sitting in a car seat in the back of my family's old, white, 1997 Pontiac Grand Prix. Love that car. The year was about 05, and uh, the vehicle was then in pristine condition, and my dad had bought the car actually brand new from the dealership. Uh, he selected a model with a fully loaded premium sound system. So I remember hearing YYZ in the back of the car at full blast while sitting in a car seat at five years old as my father was jamming out like he was back in high school. It probably wasn't the wisest choice for a parent as a, as a five-year-old kid with delicate ears was sitting in the back having the music at full blast. But nonetheless, even at a young age, in an immature way, I was shocked by the music and instantly alert to it. And then we drove up the street, got ice cream at Checkers, uh, and truly due to the powerful nature of the song and the impact it had on me, I vividly remember that memory now over 17 years ago, but I digress. There's my rant. There's my homage to one of the most monumental albums of all time, Long Live Rush. Ed, anything to add? Uh, well, I'm surprised that your ears uh, still work after listening <laughs> to... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm surprised. Uh, no, but... Um, Apart from that, uh, I didn't know the band actually, so it was all new for me. But I totally agree with what you said and the fact that musically, music really um, creates a personal connection, uh, even among people. 
and uh, that's probably the most powerful gift that uh, songs can give us so i mean you have uh, uh, these memories everyone has his personal memories but and it's a good thing i mean i think to to share and uh, and think back because um, when you listen to a song i mean it happens to me and it happened to you with yyz i'm sure uh, you listen to a song and you and you are immediately brought back to that time to that day for you and uh, yeah that's what makes music special to me totally ed you're absolutely 100 correct and you know i always say if we could just all listen to music the world would be a much more peaceful place yeah. uh you know music is one of the most unifying things of all time and uh can't overstate that gift eric you have the final say for rush here absolutely so what what can i say about moving pictures that hasn't already been said you know at the time it was a bit of a it was a pretty scary era for Prague. a lot of the bands had hit their peaks and they were distant memories uh like yes and genesis they, they sold out so they, they were gone that ship sailed uh elp i don't think they were, were really relevant during the i don't even know i i think they already disbanded by that point uh pink floyd roger waters leaves and you know they're struggling to find their sound uh, until you know the division bell and uh but who's still around you got rush and king crimson two twin peaks you know you got moving pictures and discipline but moving pictures truly rightfully deserves its place as one of the greatest prog rock albums of all time the musicianship is just off the rails there are parts where i'm just listening i'm just listening to the drums I'm, i mean i'm listening to everybody but you know you listen to neil pert and you're like holy crap how does he do that <laughs> Like, I'll just be like, oh, my God, that triplet, wow. And, you know, of course, the life's in uh, just off the rails. You know, I like the guitar solo and camera in particular. And, you know, the lyrics are great, imagery. You know, Neil Perry was very influenced by Ayn Rand, a lot of individualist, you know, uh, freedom of thought, freedom of choice. And, of course, Getty's off the rails, too. But, you know, moving pictures, it's absolutely a peak in the 80s and, once again, represent. It's one of those albums that represents, uh, you, you know, something that was very right about. It, it represented everything that was right about music in that era. Absolutely, absolutely. And everybody, as you know, Eric is always the technical guy on the rock show. He's gonna get all technical with the music terminology. Yes. I'm here to just say the album sounds good. That's the repertoire. I play five instruments. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Ed, it's no secret that the two albums mentioned were truly impactful and influential. I would argue. The 80s would not be complete without either of them. Moving into the popular side of the decade, I'm passing the torch to you, man, to start a discussion about some legendary performers on the softer side of the aisle. Yeah, thank you so much. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I see the name of this first album. You're calling it Soft? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, you will see the the, the, ne the next one, actually, after this <laughs> one. is is very popular, but... Uh, you know, thanks, Lick, and thanks, Eric. It's always interesting and inspiring listening to you. Uh, I would immediately dive into my two albums, which I consider two milestones of the decade and whose legacy has endured up until our days. Uh, the first album I'd like to speak about is London Calling by the English band The Clash. It was released in January 1980, so at the very beginning of the decade, and was the third studio album from the band. Um, London Calling clearly detaches itself from the punk rock music that The Clash were used to perform, exploring genre, genres such as uh, reggae, with the track uh, Jimmy Jets, wonderful track, R&B and third world music. Jimmy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we had over, um, a brief demonstration of the song. 
Some of the themes the album deals with include unemployment, racial conflict, drug use, and the responsibility of adulthood. Uh, specifically, I'd like to highlight the song uh, Lost in the Supermarket, my favorite from the album, which uses the supermarket as a metaphor to describe modern life and the band's existential anger toward the consumerist society they were living in. Um, speaking about numbers, London Calling sold over 5 million copies worldwide and was certified platinum in the United States. Um, however, what's probably most striking about the album is the front cover, which features bassist Paul Simonon smashing his bust and, uh, against the stage at the Palladium here in New York City. Uh, Simonon later explained that he smashed the bass out of frustration when he learned that the bouncer at the concert would not allow the audience to stand up uh, out of their seats. Uh, the photograph was named the best rock and roll photograph of all time by Q magazine, commenting that it captures the ultimate rock and roll moment, total loss of control. And I totally agree with this. Uh, what are your thoughts about this, guys? I definitely uh, agree with that one. Uh, I think that's kind of uh, emblematic of punk, right? You know, punk is that just yeah, yeah. that angsty, angry sound, uh, you know, just letting loose and going off the rails. So pretty characteristic. Not a major Clash fan myself, but everybody knows London Calling. Great album. Eric, what do you say? Oh, I have a, you know, a funny thing you mentioned, London Calling. I mean, it truly is one of the greatest albums of all time, but I mean, I used to deliver pizzas listening to that album. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be blasting clamp. Like, I would pull up to somebody's door <laughs> with pizza, and then you would hear a clamp down yeah. in the background. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know, interesting thing about London Calling was that I, I associated with the late 70s so much because, you know, in the U.K., it was released in December 1979, just a few mm -hmm. weeks before New Year's. And then you get it was really you mentioned January 1979, which is when the United States Day was released. So for me, it's like a, it's a weird territory for me. But it you know it is an 80s album really, and you know the, the, like you said the Clash. Yeah, it kind of set the agenda for the the decade. You that, know, for that, the decade to come. That's the perfect way to describe mm. it. It really does. And um, like the the Clash, they deviate. They start going yeah. from like you know punk to just like art punk. Yeah, and uh, they really deviate a lot. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting sounds on there, and uh, there's some very killer playing. Like uh, you know, the drummer I think his name's uh, Topper or mm -hmm. uh, Topperton, and uh, of course Paul Cinnamon with the uh, his bass playing is like phenomenal on that record. Really influential, you know, Joe Strummer and uh, Mick Jones, the songwriting duo, and just a wide variety. You got what you mentioned, Jimmy Jazz, Lost the Supermarket, you know, yeah. lo Lovers Rock. Um, what else am I thinking of? Uh, that, uh, Cadillac. Cad yeah, 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 like yeah, Cadillac. Yeah. Clamp down. V very, you know, across a double LP, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, but there, there's no, there's arguably no fluff at all. It's one of those no, no, no. perfect records. Perfect and constant. Truly. And and also, just one last bit, that album cover, if I recall correctly, it's actually, um, the photo is iconic, yes, but the font and the way the font is arranged, it's reminiscent of Elvis's first album. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, those are my thoughts on uh, Clash London Calling. Clash yeah, London Calling. Arguably the greatest punk album of all time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally agree with that. And now we are moving really to the most popular, to the popular side uh, we can go about the 80s because we are talking about Thriller by Michael Jackson released in 1982 and for years the best-selling album of all time. Uh, specifically until tw um, 2018, 
when it was surpassed by the Igor's greatest hits album. Thriller was able to gather up the fragmented pop audience of the time, crowning Michael Jackson as the undisputable king of pop. The great popularity of the album was also due to the collaboration with two influential artists of the time. First, the ex-Beatle Paul McCartney, who joined Jackson in The Girl Is Mine, and then Eddie Van Allen, that we already discussed in our first episode of E.T. the 80s, for the iconic guitar solo in Beat It, that everyone knows about, I'm sure. I would also like to underline another collaboration on the album, usually considered minor, but um, in my opinion quite important, the one between Jackson and keyboardist from Toto, Steve Porcaro, who wrote the track Human Nature while recording actually another the first demo of another iconic track of the 80s that we played, I think, in our in the first or second episode, Africa. Um, I would conclude my section by underlining a concept that we have already discussed, the huge influence of visual media in the promotion of music in the 80s. And one of the brightest examples is the uh, music video that accompanied the release of the title track Thriller in which uh, Jackson goes out with a girl and eventually turns into a werewolf. Uh, defining it as a simple music video is kind of reductive, as it could be easily considered a sort of short movie. And uh, I would like to uh, add a brief uh, personal comment, as Lake did before. I remember the first time I watched the, the video, the thriller video, I was something like 10 years old, and that video scared me so much that I couldn't sleep at all that <laughs> night. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty traumatic. Uh, anyway, it was all from me, and uh, we will now move on to our guest speaker, Eric. Absolutely, a uh, great, great uh, summation of that video. It is definitely yeah, creepy right. for for a kid. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna move forward from Ed to Eric. Uh, we yield yield to Mr. Eric Abisov, one of my most loyal and valued friends, and my fellow host of three years on Rock Show SFC Spot for Rock. He's spoken a few times during this podcast, but for this final section, we're going to hand the mic primarily to our esteemed guest and ask him the following question. Eric, in your opinion, what are two notable albums from the 80s? I know it's a difficult question to answer, and I'm well aware that the decade is actually one of your least favorites in the dominating eras of rock. But if you had to pick two, what would they be? All you, man. Oh boy. Okay. So I mean, I've had some time to prepare for this, but uh, I think I've ha- I have two good answers, and they're not so much as to do. Well, they came at the very end of the decade. These two albums, 1989, and they kind of set the stage. The uh, the or as Eduardo puts it, the agenda. Yeah. For the yeah. following decade, but if I had to pick two albums that were well, first of all, let me just say I I feel like the uh, the saving grace of the 80s, in, in spite of all the excess overindulgence, I believe was the underground scene, the, the, the thrash metal scene, and the punk scene, which, you know, evolved into hardcore punk and then post-hardcore art. You know, you had bands like Husker Du, Minutemen, the SST record label mates. But uh, anyways, the, the first album I'll talk about is uh, 1989. It's uh, one of the absolutely set this influenced every band every i feel like every aspect of pop uh well not not necessarily every aspect of pop like the pop element in rock music decade that followed but 1989 the pixies with doolittle 1989 uh you <laughs> I, I, like you mentioned earlier you, you mentioned um uh like record labels and it's a miracle that i remember this one uh 4ad was the record label and that that was um that label was the home of a lot of, you know, what would become indie later on. And it still is to this day. Like, you know, 
480 had bands like Cock Two Twins, and then you know to this day still have indie people like you know Saint Vincent on there. But the Pixies at the time, I believe, were Fra- Francis Black, Joey Santiago, David Lovering, and Kim Deal. Now, Doolittle set the stage for the 90s in that it influenced everybody from Nirvana to Weezer. The you know the, you know, the Pixies pioneered this this quiet, loud dynamic that those two bands would employ, like especially Nirvana. And, you know, I remember reading that Kurt Cobain was actually scared that one of his songs sounded like a direct Pixies ripoff. But, hey, uh, it would be no Nevermind without them. The songwriting is extremely tight, and not to mention that, uh, you know, uh, they're not, like, very technical musicians, but from a songwriting standpoint, it's very strong. And what um, what is very... What is very uh, strong about sound in terms of songwriting is the melody. The, these are melodies that just stick in your head. There was a real the, these guys. I'll just say these guys were would have been these guys are incredible pop songwriters. Uh, these folks, uh, Quiet Loud and all that, and yeah, uh, you know, released in '89, Nirvana, Weezer, everybody. Yeah, you you ask anybody from that decade, they'll tell you Pixies. Even David Bowie himself was a devout fan of the band. He was really uh, big on them, and he'll, there's multiple documentaries, multiple videos on YouTube that you can find with him in interviews and all that. So, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on Pixies? Uh, you guys ever listen to Doolittle? You've showed me little bits and pieces of it, uh, but I have never listened to it in full. Uh, but I will take your word that it influenced the rest of the 90s to come, grunge, pop, whatever. Yeah. You know, it was just a very influential album set in the stage, much like The Clash set the stage, set this tone for most of uh, the the um, uh, the 80s. Uh, just like you said, thrash, you know, was kind of a reaction to the glamminess and excessiveness oh, yeah. of hair metal. This kind of set the, sto- the tone for the uh, decade that was to come. Ed? Anything there? No, 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 yeah. Um, I agree, and I remember reading um, about the fact that uh, Kurt Cobain was massively influenced uh, by Doolittle. And, uh, yeah, it's not the first time. I remember once reading about uh, the song about a girl uh, by Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, who was uh, actually uh, kind of reluctant to... I mean, I'm just, you know, saying something. Yeah, it's not about the Pixies, but uh, Kurt Cobain. And he was actually reluctant to put the song about a girl on uh, the uh, Nirvana album, I think the third album, Bleach, because uh, in his opinion, it sounded too much like a R.E.M. song or a pop song in general. So, yeah, I mean, just to say that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I think that, con- that, that, um, uh, that that conflict that was in his head about that, was a, it's a pretty valid observation because I, it, it's like on one hand, you're trying to do like this anti, um, like anti-industry stuff yeah. uh, for the sake of art. You, you don't care about commercialism at all. But, you know, he can't help but put the pop song on there. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you just... Uh, you, you, you can't help you can't help it it's like it's like a conflict you know commercialism over artistry but you know he triumphed in both uh, fields very true so that's album number one for eric he's got one more album before we say it is it but what's the album what's number two eric number two i've been getting to this album a lot recently but it it so the pixies that album do a little set the stage of the 90s in the united states but across the sea, there is another 
uh, there's never there's an album that kind of set the stage for uh, 90s Britain, especially the mid 90s with Britpop, and um, that album is the Stone Roses self-titled, and I, I picked this album simply because well, I mean for for its cultural impact alone, yeah, you know. Uh, the Stone Roses were a band from Manchester, and they pioneered this sort of genre called Madchester, uh, or uh, some other people like to call it baggy. And, uh, you know, a lot of records were, some records were, were built off uh, coke. Other records were built off acid. Some were built off pot. But the Stone Roses and that whole Madchester scene, that was built off ecstasy, which was, like, big in Britain in the 90s. And it's very like uh, the Stone Roses were a very um, they were a very cocky band. I mean, they they, they kind of just like took all the classic rock influences and just melded it, and it became like their own sound. There was like a real dance element to it. There was sort of like this uh, psychedelia element. Some would argue it's like a neo psychedelia record, and it is held up by the musicianship and songwriting of you know the singer Ian Brown. Who had a, like a, he wore this, uh, it, you could see in a few music videos of the Stone Rose, he wore this famous t-shirt, white t-shirt where I think it had like all the, uh, like the British, uh, the currency all over it. And then you had, um, you had John Squire on guitar, the very, you know, Malak, all three of the, all three of the instrumentalists are just off the rails. Uh, R- Rennie uh, on the drums, uh, that guy is like the direct, <laughs> you know, if Les Claypool is the direct descendant of Geddy Lee, then this guy Rennie is definitely a direct descendant of like, you know, the Keith Moon, John Bonham school. For for that record alone, he he, he deserves it, you know, uh, it, he deserves that legendary status. And of course, there's the bass player, Manny, who's also off the rails too, just like really uh, polyphonic. But in, in terms of the cultural impact, that that record in particular, like I said, set the stage for 90s Britain. It influenced all the bands that followed them. All the bands wanted to be them, including the king, the you know, the Eduardo, I'm sure you'll agree with me, the undisputed kings of Britpop, Oasis. Yeah, there's a funny story where Liam Gallagher, their singer, that there was a funny story where he, um, he allegedly rented a tractor and he drove it, you know, for the height advantage. Yeah. He, he drove it to like the side of like a ranch they were recording at. Just like you rented a tractor yeah, just yeah. to spy on the yeah. Stone Roses, and I, I find that so yeah. funny. No, and that seems something that Liam Gallagher would do. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have to ask me, Liam Gallagher is like the last true like yeah. rock star, or yeah. the last dude who like behaves exactly. like a rock star mm-hmm. nowadays. He just doesn't care at and all. His, yeah, his solo stuff now that he's releasing is also so yeah, good. it's popular, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Like he just released that MTV mm-hmm. Unplugged thing not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not too long ago, yeah, and yeah, he's bringing that back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his voice again. I mean, he's kind of fifty I, now. I think something. Like not that. even. 40, I mean, yeah. he is forty-nine. He's going to turn fifty, but yeah, man, yeah, it amazes me. He's yeah, not yeah, fifty yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Voice is still amazing. And uh, I remember. Yeah, sorry, just to say. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They really, the Stone Roses played uh, a big role in the formation of Liam Gallagher, and also they kind of led him to become a singer because I remember uh, the first concert uh, and he said it so many times he has ever been to uh, was the Stone Roses one and uh, that's when he saw the Stone Roses uh, he said you know I want to be uh, not I want to be adored as one of their songs but I want to be a, a singer and, and uh, when the Stone Roses you know broke up and then they reunited like 10-15 years later William Gallagher go, uh, makes a public statement where he says the Stone Roses are reuniting man I haven't been this happy since my kids were born <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe even happier. Maybe even but, happier. But, but, but the cultural impact just can't be understated. Like, you know, these guys will... The thing about 90s Britain is that people who grew up in that era, like the, uh, the Bretons, they they never, ever forgot yeah. about that decade. Yeah, that yeah. decade was just, so, like, culturally, mm-hmm. culturally, mm-hmm. that still resonates to them to this day. Like, like for example, um, yeah, the, the last thing I'll say, like, uh, I think it was, uh, there was a bombing in Manchester, I believe, like, during an Ariana Grande yeah. concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I then they so. had, like, this... Uh, they had like this memorial kind of the next day, and then uh, there was like a moment of silence, and some dude just wasn't having it. He stood up, and at the top of his lungs, he started screaming the lyrics "Don't look back in anger," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the whole crowd yeah. joined in. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, it's... it's that kind of influence yeah. '90s Britain has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, and that was also the time that concert when Liam Gallagher came back to the stage after he broke up uh, with his uh, uh, band, the BDI, the uh, band yeah, that the followed. Successors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He went to Andy Sang, I think, Live Forever. Uh, and a, that's uh, a signature song. Yeah, yeah, signature song. I think, and uh, Ariana Grande sang uh, um, Don't Look Back in Anger with uh, Cold Please, Chris Martin. Yeah, if I remember correctly. So, yeah. yeah. But those are my two favorite. I mean, uh, not, not necessarily favorite albums, but I think those are two of the most influential records from that era. Well, all right. Thank you so much for Eric for joining us today. Thank you to Ed for hosting this show with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Eat the 80s. You're listening to SFC Radio, the official station of St. Francis College. Uh, be sure to tune in regularly to our main radio programming, uh, utilizing the Radio FX app or the TuneIn app, both free on the Apple and Android stores. All you got to do is favorite the station, St. Francis College, and it comes up every time for you. It's that simple. Or you can go right to our SFC Radio web- website at sfc.radio. Uh, follow us on Instagram at sfcradio underscore. Uh, for main uh, posts surrounding the activities of the station. And for Rock Show, if you're interested, go to our Instagram page at Rock Show SFC or SFC Rock Show, I believe, and you, you will not be disappointed. Our uh, social media manager, Daniel Preston, does a phenomenal job with that. Yeah, but thank yeah. you so Wonderful much. Wonderful page. Thank you so much for listening to Eat the 80s, All 80s, All the Time. Uh, you have a wonderful day, everybody. Lake Green signing off with... Eduardo Giribaldi. Ciao. And Eric Abisov as a guest. Yep, it's Rick behind the board. Farewell. All right, everyone, you have a wonderful day, and keep on rocking. Hello, everyone. My name is Michelle. And my name is Julia. Don't you love to talk about your favorite TV shows? Well, you've come to the right place. We will be analyzing our favorite parts of a show and our least favorite parts. Tune in to Rewatch. You can find us on SFC Radio, the TuneIn app, and the Radio FX app, the official app for college radio.